a deep fake platform company looking to create ethical applications of deep fakes. At this point in my life, my hobbies do include engineering. I wouldn't consider that to be my job anymore. Um, I'm also very interested in quantum physics. Mm -hmm. Sounds great. How would you describe a typical day? Sure. So my typical day on a weekday is probably the same as anyone else's. I get up at nine o'clock, make a cup of Phil's coffee or over Phil's. It's really good. I then answer a few emails, check on any machine learning algorithms we have going on, look at the tensor board files. Then from 10 to four is mostly calls, you know, getting on with engineers or sales calls or, you know, potential partnerships, just random stuff, right? It's hard to actually do work when you're on calls, right? Even if you have 30 minutes here or there in between calls, it's like not easy to actually get stuff done. So after four, from four to seven is when I actually do work, like creating slide decks or writing documents or sometimes do some engineering, which is mm -hmm. nice. Seven to eight, have dinner. Eight to 10, more work. 10 to 11, I hang out with my girlfriend before she goes to bed. Mm -hmm. 11 to two, um, that's when I can actually get some engineering stuff done. You know, like exploring some new machine learning algorithms, some new voice synthesis, that kind of stuff. I actually think it might be more interesting to talk about my typical weekend day as mm -hmm. opposed to a typical work day. Go ahead. So last Saturday was an interesting day. We had this project that we're doing. It's essentially the universal translator where we can have someone speak in uh, your own voice, but in a bunch of different languages. Mm -hmm. And the network already exists but we needed to create a system that automatically takes an input video and generates the output, right? And a lot of our engineers are working on the machine learning or working on the web UI. And so this needed to get done and I wanted to do it. So on Saturday, I woke up at 10, an hour later than usual, and pretty much spent all day building this Pythonic system that can take in an input video, runs speaker diarization splits it into sentences, translates those sentences pretty accurately to actually not just Google Translate, and then can actually speak it in that voice. And then it stitches everything back together. Honestly, from like 10 a.m. to like 7 p.m., I was just in there, in the code, actually building something, and it was a lot of fun. I don't get to do that very much anymore. So it's nice to spend some weekends like actually doing stuff, you know? All right, sounds extremely creative and definitely a weekend I'd love to partake in if I knew more engineering. But um, what is Deep Media and Copycat? I think you talked a little bit about the translating function and being able to st uh, stitch like audio pieces together. Do you wanna elaborate a little more on that? Yeah, so Deep Media is a deep fake platform company. We believe that deep fakes, otherwise known as generative AI, can transform so many different industries, media, communications, um, you know, advertising, medicine, basically everything. Mm -hmm. I know for a fact that by 2030, deep fakes will power a trillion dollar industry, and I want deep media to own as much of that as possible. Mm -hmm. Essentially, we're trying to follow Google's playbook, right? Yeah. But Google didn't start out as Alphabet. They started out as just a simple search it was just one thing, but it did that thing really well. And so that's where Deep Media is starting out as well with Copycat. Copycat is a mobile app that lets you record or upload a video in any language and then automatically export it in over 50 different languages. The results will sound like you. They'll have your voice. will even change your lips. So if someone's watching you speak Russian, they think you're speaking Russian. Like that's where the deep fakes come in, right? Mm. Like it looks totally real. And we hope that that app can be our Google search. It will 
you know, change the world for the better. It will make everything in terms of media and communication and culture totally accessible to everybody. And that will help us then launch a trillion dollar company called Deep Media. Sounds epic. All right, so how did you kind of build up Deep Media and Copycat and how did this startup process work for you? Well, for something like this, like we are on the cutting edge of generative AI and it really has been four years in the making. I mean, over the past four years, Myself personally, as well as our other engineers, as well as my co-founder, Emma, who's not an engineer, but she happens to speak six languages fluently, we all kind of had these separate parts of the puzzle, right? Like mm -hmm. translation based in text or vocal synthesis or facial reanimation or all of these pre and post-processing for data pipelines, right? All of these separate tools that a lot of other companies are doing separately when combined together can create this end-to-end -end system that actually just, you upload a video, you download it, now you're speaking Russian, right? Like, it's a lot of work, it happened over four years, but when you get all, it's like kind of like building a car, right? Mm -hmm. Like when you put the wheels here and you put this piece of the engine and the pistons and like the steering wheel, all of those things together make a car. And that's what we've done over the past four years. Definitely, it sounds like there's a lot of things coming together in tandem to kind of create and harmonize into this wonderful project that's being able to break through language barriers as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's a pretty daunting task. It's one of those things where it's like, if you told someone that you could do this without actually showing it to them, they'd be like, this, there's no way, right? Like we get that all the time, there's no way. And then we show them a video and people are like, whoa, this like works. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right, are there any other projects that Deep Media is looking into alongside Copycat? And what inspired you to start a bunch of these projects to break language barriers? Sure. So, you know, for the first year or so of this company, we tried pretty much everything. Mm -hmm. We tried like, in fact, in 2020, Deep Media had the first deep fake app on the market. It was like you take a picture of your grandma and you record one video of yourself and you can make her say anything. Like you can make her <laughs> lip sync Gangster's Paradise or something, right? Mm -hmm. The problem with that is that almost everyone was using it to create like really uncool videos of politicians, mm -hmm. right? And no matter how hard we tried to ban certain faces or police this app, it was just impossible, right? Mm -hmm, definitely. So we tried a bunch of different things, but we have a serious commitment to ethics at Deep Media, especially in the deep fake world, because obviously this stuff is so scary, right? Like you could use this stuff to do a lot of bad things. And we all have families, like we all consider ourselves to be good people. Mm -hmm. We cannot contribute to that. We would just yeah. not be able to live with ourselves if we contributed to that. So we spent a lot of time trying to figure out what products are both really exciting to people and also really ethical, right? Mm -hmm. So after a lot of experimentation, after looking at a lot of different products is kind of when we found this universal translator idea. And of course we have a lot of other stuff on the horizon. Like deep fakes can do everything from automatic makeup transfer to obviously face mm -hmm. swaps, right? They can, uh, honestly, they can revolutionize medicine where you could take like an MRI and increase the resolution by four X and be able to diagnose things like cancers or bone spurs more accurately, right? There's so much that deepfakes can do, but we need to develop as a company and as a society in order to get to that place. And we see that this universal translator is our path to get there. Definitely. So you talked a little bit about experimentation, and I think you've gone into a couple of fields. So like MRI scanning, which is definitely a lot in the medical field, as well as just breaking down language barriers in general. 
So what would be the importance of experimentation for you? Mm. That's a really interesting question. I mean, our entire, our entire company is just like 20 different experiments being run at the same mm -hmm. time, right? Like when you're building a machine learning algorithm, even if you've been doing this for like seven years, like I have, it's still all experimentation. You set up the basic one, you run it, you get some good results. Then you try, you know, what if we try every 50% of the time flipping this image, you know, mm -hmm. mirror image and seeing if that changes anything, right? You always run experiments to get good results. But even when you're building product, you still run experiments, right? In copycat, we experimented putting things behind the paywall or making things free, right? Mm -hmm. Turns out people don't like to pay, surprise, surprise. And our mission here is not really, it's not really about revenue. It's about changing the world, right? It's about globalizing mm -hmm. culture. And so for us, it's always about running experiments. It's like having your KPI, which can be different for everyone, but for mm -hmm. us, it's just about, you know, getting content out there, getting international eyeballs on content. That's our KPI and running experiments to hit that goal. So, I mean, experimentation is the whole thing. Mm -hmm, definitely. So it seems that there's less of a focus on, for example, revenue and more overall getting like a foundation out there is the KPI. Totally. I mean, again, it's, it's like when you're running at a startup and especially in my opinion, you got to do what you like doing, you know, mm -hmm. we're the people like myself and my coworkers dedicate 80 to 100 hours every week. And, you know, obviously you know, business has to make money. We realize that and we do generate revenue, but we're not in this to generate revenue for the company, right? We, all of us are in this because we fundamentally believe in the mission of globalizing media, communication and culture, right? And so that's all we really care about. And we're gonna do whatever it takes to make that happen. And obviously revenue is an important part of that because the way you do it is build a scalable trillion dollar company that has arms everywhere, right? So media needs to have revenue combined with it, but it's a means to an end, not the goal in and of itself. Definitely. All right, with this international globalization, how do you think Copycat will change entertainment given the increasing consumption of international media? So yeah, I love that question. Mm -hmm. So let's take something like Squid Game, right? Mm -hmm. Wonderful show, everyone loved it. The one complaint people had about it was that, you know, they didn't like the dubs. And mm -hmm. that's a funny complaint to me because I don't think people understand how hard it is to create dubs. Like the amount of people smart people who went into this and it's not just voice actors it's, it's really not voice actors at all it's the people behind the scenes working tirelessly to create something that you want to watch and so mm -hmm. you know they work so hard and i think it's just so hard for them to create content that works in every language like that's never going to happen right it's it's weird to me it's like you know it's kind of like using a fax machine right? Like it's this, it's this thing that people have been doing forever. And then suddenly a new technology comes out and like, why were we ever faxing things when we can just use email? Right. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how I see automatic universal translation going. It's these people working so hard to make one dub, like literally spending millions of dollars to create one dub working with voice actors. Those same people are going to use the universal translator and think, why did we ever do that in the past? Right. Like creating content and media, it comes down to human ingenuity and human creativity. It's important to me that we don't take that out of the equation, but rather we build tools for creatives to internationalize their own content, right? And when we do that,
that means that the, the output is actually good because creatives made it. It wasn't made by a machine. It was made by humans, right? And we can make it 10 times faster, 10 times cheaper. And more, most importantly to me, you can do it in a bunch of languages that you wouldn't originally dub, right? Mm -hmm. You're never going to dub anything in Ukrainian and Croatian, but if it's automated 10 times faster, 10 times cheaper, then suddenly these languages like, you know, become worth it to actually create native content for, right? And so that's really cool to me. So people in Croatia feel like they're being talked to in their native language, like they're being cared about in terms of like this global international media market. And that's what's exciting. I think, you know, we're going to start seeing a lot of new content creators, both amateur, you know, TikTokers, streamers, but also professional content creators make some really, really good stuff from places that you probably wouldn't think right? Like random ass countries where people don't speak English, they're making good stuff. And if we can translate that into every single language and deliver it to the world, well, suddenly we start to have a little bit more of an understanding of what's actually going on in Kazakhstan, right? Places like mm -hmm. that. Definitely. It seems like an epiphany for language accessibility. So from the biggest of blockbuster films all the way down to like 10 second clips. I think yeah. there's a lot to be changed and also being able to represent a lot more countries on a global stage. Um, I think I did watch Squid Game and I think I watched it in dubs at one point. I was like, it sounds a little off, but there's definitely a lot of effort that's gone into creating that. So hopefully it'll be a really big kind of um, toolkit for, for example, creatives to use in the media industry as well. Yeah. Personal opinion here in terms of subbing and dubbing, which one do you prefer? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, the honest truth is that I need the dub. To say I have a hard time reading things quickly, like I, I like to skim, right? Mm. So whenever I'm reading a document, if it's like 10 pages, I won't like read every single word. You know, mm. I'll like go through it and skim and like understand the majority of the information. And you can't really do that with subs, right? Because like mm. when you're watching content, it's like, it's like, I don't know, for some reason, it just seems hard to read. Like they'll be up there for just a second and then they'll go away. So I need the dubs there. I usually watch it with dubs and subs at the same time. And that's definitely a worse experience. <laughs> and so that's why I prefer native English content. If we're being totally real, a large part of this company is me just selfishly wanting to watch all of this other content in English. Like I, I, there's this really great Netflix show called A Very Secret Service. It's in French. Love that show but it's so hard to watch. And like, if we could just make that in English and I could put it over here on the side when I'm doing something else, you mm -hmm. know, like programming something, watching this TV show on the side, like that's the dream, you know? Mm -hmm. I hope to never read or listen to a sub or dub again in my life. Mm -hmm. Definitely makes stuff a lot more convenient if you're just able to kind of experience it and it also feels more authentic as well. Mm -hmm. See the problem with dubs and, and my biggest, the biggest problem with dubs in my opinion, is that the lips don't match, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're watching a dub and you hear the audio and the lips don't match, it is so just it takes you out of the experience so much, yeah. right? And I think that's why a lot of people don't like dubs. And that's one of the things that deep media is fixing. Like in any of our output videos, the lips match the output language, right? That's what deep fakes do. We take your face, change your lips so it looks like you're speaking Russian. Suddenly you're watching a dub you don't know that it was dubbed. Like you think they filmed Squid Game in English because they're all speaking English. Like you can see their mouth move. And like in that world, the dub wins 100% of the time. Mm -hmm. I think there was also a statistic out there that I think 
the dub made more money for Netflix than the sub did because I think it was simply just more accessible in that sense. There's definitely a lot to be done in terms of improving that and I think Deep Media helps with that a lot. Mm -hmm. So why did you choose to become a generative AI expert? There's actually an interesting story behind that. So I've been building apps since I was like 12 years old, um, iOS apps and web apps. Um, and when I got to college, I started getting really interested in machine learning, computer vision specifically. I took a lot of courses in computer vision and thought it was really cool. So after graduating, I worked as a machine learning engineer um, for a few different places. I was a contractor for this boutique firm that did tech for like Nike and Macy's and Nordstrom, and it was really freaking cool. I also worked for a medical startup that did like automatic um, labeling of like MRIs. So I was like, you know, building machine learning algorithms, working in computer vision, working in PyTorch and TensorFlow. When one day I saw this deep fake video, it was Jordan Peele on the left-hand side and Barack Obama on the right-hand side. Oh. <laughs> you might've seen it, right? Mm -hmm. And it was like Jordan Peele's face, his voice, his emotions, everything was being transferred to Obama perfectly. Like I saw that on Instagram and I was just like, whoa, this is insane. This is going to change everything. And that day in 2017, I found a deep media. And I'm like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be the expert here. I'm gonna learn everything I can, re-implement these algorithms, train them in PyTorch, spend my own savings on these GPU costs to figure out how I can make this technology palatable and accessible to everyday people. And it took four years, but now we're here. Mm -hmm. So would you say that's kind of your epiphany for starting deep media? Yeah, definitely. That moment, I, I can point back to that moment and say, mm -hmm. all of this is because of that. Mm -hmm. So what's the process for creating a deep fake? And how can we, as, for example, normal content consumers, tell between deep fakes and real videos? Sure. So there are actually two specific types of deep fakes. There's the traditional deep fake, which most people are familiar with. You take 10 hours of, you know, some random person that already kind of looks like Tom Cruise, and then 10 hours of Tom Cruise. And you train one network that can take this person who, you know, is already white and has brown eyes, brown hair, already looks like Tom Cruise, but not 100%. And that network can change that person's face into Tom Cruise in certain situations, right? That is a traditional deep fake. But that has certain problems, the most notable of which is you need 10 hours of data, right? You also need to train it for about a week and it costs like $5,000 and it's not really sustainable or scalable. So I saw that problem in 2019 when I was creating these networks and I started pioneering a new type of deep fake called a one-shot network. What that is, is it actually is trained in such a way that during inference, when you're actually running it, it can take just one video of someone, like a five second video of you and create a deep fake of you saying anything, right? It doesn't need to be trained on your face for 10 hours. It just needs five seconds. So that is a deep media deep fake, right? What that means is that we can release consumer apps. We don't need 10 hours of your face. You just download our app, say something in English. We have the data we need to run it. We also don't train it on your face. So it's not like, you know, your data is over here trained and like it's used for someone else. No, it's clean, segmented just for you, right? We felt that was necessary to make applications that the world can use and feel comfortable with. Now, whether you're a traditional using a traditional deepfake network or one of deep media's deepfake networks, you can't tell. That's the honest answer. A human being will never be able to tell that it's a deepfake if it's actually good, which ours are, right? However, machines can tell that it's a deepfake. 
you know, and that's really important to us. We actually pioneer deep fake detectors because we have so much deep fake data, like an insane amount of deep fake data. We can actually build deep fake detectors that actually work. Actually, there's a new deep fake detector released um, from the United States Army Research Lab. It's called Deep Fake Hop. And that's proving to be very effective. I don't know. I mean, I'd love to talk about it a little bit. If you mm -hmm. go ahead. Okay. So the way deep fake detectors work, um, it's it's usually based on a simple binary classifier, right? You have a bunch of fake images or rather videos. We use videos. Um, a brief aside: if it's an image, it's a two D network. If it's a video, it's a three D network, right? So we have a bunch of video videos in a three D network. And we say, here are like 10,000 real videos and here are 10,000 fake videos. Learn how to realize real versus fake. And like, if you or I look at a fake video, we can't tell, but over time, this network will learn how to do it. So there was this new network released uh, by the army called DFakeHop. It actually uses subspace learning, which is, you know, traditional machine learning algorithms will take in an actual image, right? Mm -hmm. Or a video and use like a 2D or 3D convolutional operator to then start interpreting that, that data, right? Well, you can actually do something called vector quantization before running it through the network that takes this high dimensional image, like if it's a 256 by 256 image, that's what, around 4 million pixels, like 4 million data points that you have to interpret. That's not right, whatever, I think it's 6 million, <laughs> it's a lot. So you can actually run vector quantization on that image beforehand. And it takes it, like for example, vector quantization might be k-means or it might be principal component analysis. That's a good one, right? Mm -hmm. And you can run principal component analysis, get the eigenvectors and then train a network on those eigenvectors instead of actually training it on the image. And so if you do something like that, you can actually get pretty good accuracy. So you can take these images, transform them into this subspace that is a lot lower dimension and you train 10,000 samples on real and fake in this lower dimensional data set. And then suddenly you start getting 95, 99% accuracy on fake videos that look totally real. And so deep media is doing that today specifically because we're aiming to be the premier deep fake brand. And as the premier deep fake brand, we think it's vital that we launch deep fake detectors for free, basically. And like, we wanna partner with governments and we wanna partner with news organizations. We're not looking to make money off of deep fake detectors. We're just looking to keep people safe. Mm -hmm. There's definitely a large ethical aspect in there and especially to prevent some of the very real risks of like identity theft and also misinformation that come with, for example, the misusage of people's faces or especially like authorities as well. Exactly. And yeah, this perfectly transitions to our next question, which is, what is the importance of ethics and AI and how does deep media demonstrate this? Mm -hmm. As we're moving into the synthetic media world, ethics is everything. Without mm -hmm. an ethical backbone in our society and in our companies, we pose serious threats to democracy, right? I mean, imagine a world where you can get on a Zoom call, be anyone you want, have any background, have any voice, and no one on the other end will be able to tell that it's fake. That's basically here. Like right now, deep media can build that product. Like we actually have that product internally where on a Zoom call, I can change my face and voice, but we're not doing that because it's super uncool, right? Because if we would launch that public publicly, right? Then obviously people are going to abuse it. Like we know for a fact with our experience in the early days of copycat, People will do anything they can to abuse your product for 
uncool use cases. Not everyone, but even if 1%, if 5% of a million people are using your app to do uncool stuff, that is enough to destroy democracy. Mm -hmm. So deep media's approach to ethics and deep fakes is about having walled gardens. It's about producing and creating products that can only be used for a very specific thing. You can mm -hmm. only use copycat to translate videos in your face and voice. You cannot use it to create deep fakes of Joe Biden. You just can't, it's impossible, mm -hmm. right? And so because of our ethical backbone, we have committed ourselves to a less viral product. Like obviously a product where you can upload a picture of anyone and make them say anything will go super viral and make us so much money and be like, you know, on the front page of the New York Times. But we're not gonna do that because we have ethics. And I think other people don't have those same ethics. We've seen this. Um, there are products out there where you can upload a picture of Biden and make him have like a funny lip sync, right? Which is relatively harmless, but you know, if they had the same tech stack as deep media, those same people would probably let you fake his voice and his body, which we can do, right? Mm -hmm. So ethics must come both from the society and from the people running these companies. Yeah. I fundamentally believe that this industry must be regulated. And I don't think you'll often find a CEO of a company saying, come regulate my industry, right? Most people are against regulation, but again, deep media cares about ethics. We care about helping people above everything else, literally above everything else. We're here to make the world a better place. And part of that is saying, come regulate us, right? Let's have ethics in this industry. Let's all care about what this means and what it can do, the harms and the goods, and actually, you know, figure this out. Definitely. There seems to be a very large emphasis on corporate social responsibility and being able to kind of uphold at least the company side and being able to be like, hey, we're going to take on these regulations and that's in order to promote these benefits of making sure that no one gets hurt and also people's identities remain intact as well. Exactly. And I also think it's about a level playing field, right? Because deep media cares a lot about this, but other people don't. Like, that's not fair for us, right? Like, it makes it harder for us to succeed because we have an ethical background, like we have an ethical boundaries that we will not cross. Mm -hmm. And so if there is this, you know, imposed ethical standard, which will eventually happen, and we hope it happens soon, then suddenly it becomes fair for everyone. Mm -hmm. Now, at the same time, the fact that we did have this ethical standard that we wouldn't cross, that's the only reason we even figured out a universal translator, right? Mm -hmm. If we didn't have this ethical standard, we would have built that other app where you can make anyone say anything and that would have went viral and made us a bunch of money and then we would have sold the company, right? Mm -hmm. We would have done that a year ago. But because we didn't do that, we then figured out the universal translator, which is actually a much bigger opportunity. Like mm -hmm. an app that can make anyone say anything, that's cool, you get swallowed by Facebook for 50 million, but a universal translator, that's a billion dollar idea, mm -hmm. right? The only way we got to that was by having ethics as part of our core, you know, our core being. Mm -hmm. How can we ensure that AI remains aligned with human values? Mm -hmm. I think you got to, it's, it's kind of, it's a similar answer. People <laughs> must in their companies care about ethical values and human values. Mm -hmm. And people in the government must care about human values and ethical values. That's what it is. We need the human beings in these positions of power to actually care about this kind of stuff above profits. And that is hard. That's a hard thing to ask. Um, I don't think many corporations are gonna do that, but I do think the governments can do that, right? 
And so I think we also need a global response to something like this. And that is a core part of Deep Media's mission statement is to enable global government responses to global problems like climate change and pandemics and supply chain issues and war and poverty and hunger. Like we're here to enable global solutions to those problems. And I think ethics in AI is a global problem. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And overall, how do you think generative AI will help other sectors like research and education? Hmm. Well, education is an interesting one. We're actually um, looking to partner with some ed tech startups to deliver their content in every single language across the world, right? Like if we could work with Khan Academy to take their content, which is available for free and it's pretty awesome. I mean, that's kind of how I learned calculus in high school, you know? My backbone of my education. <laughs> <laughs> right, I know. Like imagine how much society, global society can advance if people in like, you know, rural India can suddenly learn calculus when they're like kids, like, you know, like we did, right? That's the kind of thing that deep fakes and generative AI can do basically, right? Mm -hmm. We can use this same tech stack to globalize education, to globalize research, like you asked, mm -hmm. right? Like we can have a lot of new types of collaboration between research partners in real time, curing cancer, right? curing AIDS like we can actually again these are all global problems like cancer doesn't care if you're American or Chinese or Indian or Russian or you know it doesn't give a shit so I don't think we should give a shit whether you're Chinese American Indian or Russian let's all work together to solve these problems that affect all of us and that's what deep fakes and deep media is going to do definitely there seems to be a lot of like democratization of resources and being able to help people that are even in the most rural of areas and bringing them the education that they need to also bring a lot of economic mobility and change for them as well. Mm -hmm. And um, lastly, to wrap it up with a few questions directly related to youth, how do you think incoming generations should view and will transform the future of entrepreneurship and tech? Mm -hmm. In my experience, I've seen a lot of younger people in the younger generations care about things, which I think is phenomenal. Like I care a lot about the environment and mm -hmm. at Deep Media, we are planning to offer our translation services pretty much at cost for anything environmentally related, right? Mm -hmm. So like David Attenborough documentaries and Inconvenient Truth, any influencer on Twitch or YouTube or TikTok who talks about the environment, translate it totally for free, right? Mm -hmm. So if you care about things and you build companies that can actually change the world, then, you know, take your value system and integrate it into your company, right? You can do these things. You can build insane technology that changes the world that helps you promote your own value system. And, I, and I've seen a lot of people, especially even at Deep Media, a lot of our younger people really vibe with that. Like they're into that. They're into like doing things for free because it's the right thing to do. And I think the more that people can do that, the more that corporations and corporate culture changes from making money at all costs to doing good things for people at all costs, right? And that more than anything is going to help make sure that the future is bright. Definitely. I think there's a lot that youth can use this to essentially benefit others and be able to see beyond like personal profit and also be able to, I guess, promote equality and equity to a certain extent and be able to use this technology for a lot of good. Yeah, right? I mean, like, 
I'm a huge Star Trek fan, which is like mm-hmm. why this was created in the first place. Like I literally just stole this idea from Star Trek, this universal mm-hmm. translator. And in that world, you know, people don't value, well, humans don't value profit above all else, right? Human beings value helping people above all else. And society still works, you know, it didn't like crash and burn. People are totally fine. And it's just about, you know, we have to decide as a society, as a global society, what we care about more than anything. I think a problem does exist when it's not a global response. Like if a country doesn't care about profits above all else, that country will not be a global superpower. And then their value systems will get pushed aside against other people who are global superpowers, right? So it's hard and you know like we can like it's not as simple as just saying help people and don't care about money which is literally what i just said (laughs) but i think if we can do that not as americans but as human beings then it starts to work right definitely there seems to be a lot of elements of unity that are intertwined within like promoting a lot of this equity and support for other people as well i think so right I mean, how can you, it is about unity, right? It's about seeing others as yourself, like seeing people who need help as the same as you are, no matter where they're from or what they look like. And when you can start vibing on that level, mm-hmm. then suddenly all this stuff is easy. Like it's, a, it's, it's an easy decision on what to do. You don't even think about it, right? You, you want to translate uh, like climate change documentaries for free? Not a question. Of course, we're going to do that because it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So uh, before we wrap this up, we also have one more question, which is how can youth that are passionate about your mission get involved with Seat Media? I love that question. I mean, they can just hit me up, you know, hit me up, um, Rigel at deepmedia.ai. We're always looking for passionate, excited people who really align with our mission mm-hmm. to help because we need help. We have a huge mission of essentially globalizing media communication and culture. Mm-hmm. And that's going to take everyone from influencers to engineers to thought leaders to just, you know, the average person who wants to get in and help other people. Like we're trying to build a community of people who align with this mission. And if you're one of those people, hit me up. Sounds perfect. All right. Is there anything else you want to share? Well, I would like to say that I think what you all are doing is pretty amazing. (laughs) Like, especially in this time of so much uncertainty, I think just surfacing, you know, people who might not be mainstream, right? People who have some some weird ideas. Like I know a lot of the ideas I said here are pretty nuts, but I think giving these kind of out there concepts, a platform Mm -hmm. that I think are good, concepts that help people, Mm -hmm. a platform like directly to the youth is awesome. Like I'm really excited about that. And it makes me feel really, really good about the future of humanity. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for actually taking the time to meet with us. I was looking at a lot of your work and I think I found your website first I was like this is pretty revolutionary like a lot of this stuff looks nuts but it's something I want to cover as well and I think there's a lot of other people that are definitely really interested in it so I was like this is something to share to the masses um one actually thing we'll edit this in later on but I forgot to ask you how do you manage your work-life balance because I think you have a lot of activities and projects you pursue and I was like whoa that's some crazy time management there so any tips on that Yeah. So in order to manage your time, I think you have to do what you love. Mm -hmm. I love this company. I love the people I work with and I love engineering. Mm -hmm. So as long as you're doing what you love, it will not feel like work. But at the same time, I think it's really important to value your own mental health and to spend Mm -hmm. time with your loved ones. 
So I take two hours out of every day, one hour for myself and one hour for my loved ones to make sure that we at least see each other every single day, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think it's a combination of being obsessed with what you do, but also forcing yourself to take a little time off every day for your own health. Thank you for listening. We'll see you on the next episode. If you have any recommendations, questions, or concerns, please contact us on either Instagram at Liberate Business or by email at liberateleadersinbusiness at gmail.com.